Today's show is brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, sharing nothing but the best in whole grain nutrition and committed to their mission of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. If I told you that data, software, and numbers were going to determine whether or not you had a good dinner out on Friday night, would you believe me? If not, stay tuned for this episode of Tech Bytes. Good morning, Heritage Radio Network listeners. It is a beautiful sunny day in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm happy to report. I'm sitting inside a shipping container in the backyard of Roberta's Pizza, and that means it is time for Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network where we talk to innovators and influences who are at the crossroad of food and technology. Uh, today we have today is Thursday, March 9th, if you happen to be listening in the future, which I know many of you do. Our guest today is Damien McGavro. We should have done this beforehand. McGavro. McGavro. Did I say that right? Yes. It's always very... Tip to new podcasters, very important to pronounce your guest's name correctly. Damien is here to talk about his recently published book, The Underground Culinary Tour, how the new metrics of today's top restaurants are transforming how America eats, which is very food techy. So, Damien, thank you for coming out. Thank you for having me. We will start off the episode like we always do, going around the shipping container, talking about apps that we love, new ones maybe we've discovered, old favorites that have been living on our home screen. The only rule is you cannot talk about an app that you have invested in or created or own. But first up, we will hear from David Tatashore, our engineer and, and Heritage Radio Network studio manager, who was gone last week because he was down in Charleston for the Wine and Food Festival. That's right. Broadcasting from a teepee. <laughs> yes. It was uh, a little bigger than our shipping container here, but uh, it, it was, you know, familiar uh, enclosed surroundings, so it didn't feel like too far from home. And you did a lot of broadcasting and interviewing with some of the HRN hosts and some special content from down there? We did, yeah. A couple hosts were down. Carrie Diamond from Radio Cherry Bomb, Jimmy Carboni from uh, Beer Sessions Radio, Sam Ben Ruby from The Grape Nation, and uh, also Katie and Kat uh, here on staff did a bunch of hosting. In total, we did about a week's worth of shows in one weekend, so it was pretty intense. So will these... Uh, Charleston Food and Wine shows be disseminated on the classic platforms, Cherry Bomb Radio, Beer Sessions Radio, or will there be a special series of episodes somewhere? Yeah, so we have a special series set up on the Heritage Radio Network web uh, webpage, heritageradionetwork.org. Uh, it's called HRN On Tour, or Heritage Radio Network On Tour. I think it's spelled out. Uh, but it's just it's listed along with all the other shows under the special column because it doesn't run uh, during a normal weekday. But um, yeah, all the shows you can find under there. 
and that that's not just Charleston. It's also when we were in Nashville, uh, when we were in San Francisco. Anytime Heritage Radio goes out on the road, you can find our recordings uh, under that heading, Heritage Radio Network on Tour. And they're all up on the website now, so you've got a lot of catching up to do. Where are you going next? That's a great question. I, I don't think we have any plans at the moment, but... So then we'll be the first to know. That means the uh, the dance card's open. So if someone's hosting a festival or a food conference, yeah, we welcome. Uh, yeah, give us a sponsorship. Shout. So techbytes at heritageradionetwork dot org. Email. There you go. So we digress. Do you have an app for us this week, David? I do. It's a kind of a guilty pleasure uh, food related app called Caviar. Oh yeah, Caviar. Actually, Mike Lee, the founder, was. One of the first guests of Tech Bytes oh, on okay. episode number one. Whoa. Episode number one in January of 2015. Does this mean, am I like the millionth customer? I win the prize now for... Yes. I'm going to give you a Heritage Radio Network t-shirt after this. Oh, excellent. But he was on because that year he had won Forbes 30 Under 30 in the food tech space. And he was on talking about that about caviar, which he developed basically while he was working in San Francisco and he and his office colleagues were really unsatisfied with the food delivery options when they were working at night. So Mm -hmm. they created caviar so they could basically get the things they wanted delivered to them. And I believe they've since sold it. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it it, it features, you know, not just the standard things that you would find on like, I guess, Seamless or Grubhub. Um, it's, It's places that you wouldn't typically think of as having delivery service like for example uh emily pizza in clinton hill is on there um so if you want that famous burger i think they'll even deliver that i believe the concept of caviar is for places that do not have delivery and i think the caviar service is they provide the restaurants with all of the sort of delivery utensils and containers and things like that and then have drivers and delivery people come and pick it up and then take it away so Mm -hmm. um the restaurants that do not have delivery, do not have to really create a separate delivery infrastructure to make that happen. Gotcha. Okay. Caviar. Very nice. An oldie, but a goodie. Mm-hmm. Damien, do you have an app that you like right I, now? That I like caviar too. I, and my <laughs> mind went to uh, soupy dumplings from Red oh, Farm. Yeah. So that's sort of my treat that I give myself. I love Red Farm and uh, I go to caviar to get uh, my soupy dumplings delivered. Yeah. So caviar is your favorite app? I really enjoy that. It's like for the splurge. For the splurge. Caviar for the splurge. Is, uh, I get, we could create a new hashtag, FTS, instead of FTW. Oh, yay on the sound effects there. <laughs> you know, um, for those of you who do not know, David uh, had a podcast called What's the Story, which we interviewed him about two episodes ago. And he was the sound designer on that. And it made me laugh in, I think it's the last episode maybe, or the second to last episode. There are four in the season with the air horn. Is it the third episode? Oh, that's the fourth. Yeah. <laughs> Is it the fourth where one of the characters goes on this uh, soul searching retreat with a, a guy who has like an air horn? Yeah. Warner air horn. Warner air horn. And mm-hmm. it's this sort of like self-help philosophy. That's very aggressive. That comes with a lot of air horn noises. Yes, he, he punctuates all of his points with. Yeah. It's very funny. It's very funny. Okay. So delivery. And you know what? My app this week actually dovetails very nicely into the double mention of caviar. My app is beefsteak. It is the 
restaurant app for the restaurant Beefsteak, which is owned by Jose Andres. And Beefsteak is a fast, casual, vegetable-forward restaurant that's inspired by Spain. Uh, the mascots and logos for the restaurant are these absolutely whimsical, adorable uh, illustrations of vegetables that are kind of like walking around as little people. It's a great app. It works really well in real time. I'm a huge fan of Jose Andres and want to give him a shout out and encourage everybody to support all of his restaurants because he is a great chef and a great person. The Beefsteak app, incidentally, was the inspiration for our episode 68, Pokemon Go, because I had downloaded the app and I was looking at it and I think it was maybe two or three days after the Pokemon app, that after the Pokemon game came out, the Beefsteak app pushed out an offer to everybody saying, Pokemon Go in the store, come in, get this. So there, whoever's managing the information on that is doing it in real time um, and they're doing a great job. So if you're down in the D.C. area and you like Spanish fast casual food, Beefsteak from Jose Andres. So as we mentioned at the top of the show, Damien is here to talk about his book, The Underground Culinary Tour. And it's a categorized as a business book. It's nonfiction. It basically talks about how capturing all of the data and metrics for your restaurants on the day-to-day, when you look at them collectively, can really help a restaurant find things that are working so they can replicate them, find things that aren't working so they can fix them, and then give them a real-time snapshot of what kind of numbers they're running so that they can be smarter about inventory purchasing, staffing, and all those day-to-day things. So instead of using your gut or your best sense or a guess or what you remember from what happened around this time last year, you can really do it empirically with numbers. And it's something that we talk a lot about on this show. Um, And it's also something that becomes more and more relevant as the industry becomes more and more technologically driven. I would be curious to ask um, right out of the gate, though, given that it is a nonfiction business book, I'm curious who the audience is that you intended for this book. Is it restaurant people? Is it investment people? Um, most food tech people are always you know, interested in having strong profiles in the business world. Is it uh, you know, other software companies? It, it wasn't really clear to me who the target audience was when I was reading through it. Well, the, the Underground Culinary Tour, it's the backstory of how our dining experience is being changed by two big things. Yes. A- adapting mm-hmm. technology and data, as well as uh, adapting um, to the trends of the new foodie generation. The restaurant tours doing those two things. I call them new guard restaurant tours. So I think, and one of the uh, secret ingredients is data. So it appeals to both um, consumers, foodies, if you will, as well as um, you know business people and restaurant tours. So it's really um, you know two two uh, distinct audiences. So. I can understand the appeal to the business owner and the person who's involved in this industry, whether directly as a chef or a restaurant owner or tangentially as a service provider or any number of the hundreds of companies that interact with restaurants. You think consumers sort of want the under the hood view of um, how, you know, margins work, how ordering works, how people staff, how restaurant theft happens. Is that really of interest to the consumer? Is it general interest? Is it hardcore foodie interest? Sure. I think that um, 
you know, one analogy is um, it's like Moneyball for restaurants. And I think that, uh, you know, what Michael Lewis did in his book and in the, the movie of Brad Pitt is uh, really talked about um, how baseball was being transformed, you know, by data. And, you know, really, you know, in the book and the movie, uh, they would evaluate baseball players based on all these qualitative uh, elements. Um, things like, hey, um, you know, it's a nice swing or your girlfriend is hot or isn't hot. All of these qualitative things, quite frankly, had nothing to do with how good the baseball player is going to be. But they were using their gut to do that. And so similarly, in the um, the restaurant business, many times uh, restaurateurs make um, uh, similar qualitative uh, assessments when it's uh, the data actually that can help them, you know, really better train a server because, they're, you know, the data may uncover that um, – there is an opportunity to, that uh, you know uh, to sell uh, to sell more wine, and they really need to be more comfortable with um, and get trained on wine. And so I think that just like the uh, baseball fans uh, gravitated to uh, to Moneyball, I think uh, foodie fans will gravitate to the Underground Culinary Tour. Well, for baseball fans, though, if the team wins, everybody wins. And then for foodie and culinary fans, you know, in reading through it from the restaurant point of view, it, it's it's absolutely a hundred percent unrefutable smart logic and smart business. But at the end of the day, does the foodie consumer want to know how the restaurant's going to have them buy a Magnum instead of a regular bottle or, you know, upsell this and that for the bottom line and the experience. So when you look at something from a hospitality professional point of view, um, I think Danny Meyer's introduction to the book articulates it in a, in a really nice way. The end goal is really providing an experience that is above and beyond the expectations of the diner. But when you kind of read through the nitty gritty, will people have the same um, uh, surprise and delight of discovery when it's talking about things that seem to be increasing a buy or increasing a, a checkpoint? Well, I think that, you know, one of the things, sort of, for, for example, in Chapter 9, um, in the, it's uh, Innovating the Family Business, you know, there's a restaurant called Brennan's. And imagine... Very famous, very, very famous legacy American classic in New Orleans. It's, also yeah. the site of the famous Folgers coffee commercials, which we actually just talked about last week on the Impossible Foods episode, where they had those old commercials where they would switch people's coffee at the end of their meal at Brennan's. Do you remember those? <laughs> no, I don't. Um, but, um, but imagine instead of us being in uh, Bushwick, we're in the courtyard of, uh, of Brennan's. And it's a beautiful day like it is in Bushwick here. But we have a uh, knowledgeable server guides us through to their egg sardou of Cajun Bloody Mary and Bananas Foster, actually a dish that they actually invented. And we get an incredible service experience. And so that's what you see as a consumer. But what you don't see is in the behind the scenes, it's actually the data that is making sure that all the servers are expertly trained on the menu. And it makes sure that they're not going to run out of the dishes that you want. And it's really the data is figuring out all the patterns, how many you know, mimosas are going to be sold on a rainy Saturday versus a sunny Sunday. And that really, uh, the data is really enabling the restaurateur to give that incredible experience um, that we get as a consumer. And um, again, the data is that uh, secret ingredient. And I think, um, you know, the consumer is, um, is fascinated by how things work. 
And when you look at a restaurant like Brennan's, it's such an amazing institution, but it's also very innovative as well. And um, and I do think that, you know, to be a New Guard restaurateur, you don't have to just be the restaurant that's just been open for a year. You can be open for 70 years, quite frankly, and embrace these principles. Um, so you think then consumers and restaurant goers and diners, that their experience will be enhanced by having this sort of behind the scenes look at, at how things work. I guess similarly to when Tony Bourdain wrote his book, Kitchen Confidential, there was, I think, an initial, a little bit of a feeling from the industry that he was sort of revealing some of the secrets and maybe some of them were not entirely flattering, but the end result was people were better informed. Yeah, I think people, um, you know, it's really, you know, these restaurateurs are providing these this magical experience, but a lot has to go right for everything to go well. And the data is just one of the, uh, the key ingredients. Not the only thing, but it's an important ingredient. So one of the important ingredients here at the Heritage Radio Network is our sponsors and underwriters and the company who support us. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, which is why we're a .org. We subsist entirely on membership and sponsorship from wonderful companies like this one. Let's listen. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. When you mill whole grains, you get all three parts, the bran, the germ, and the endosperm. The bran, or the roughage, makes up about 14% of the whole grain. It's the outer skin of the edible kernel. It contains large amounts of B vitamins, some protein, trace minerals, phytochemicals, but most importantly, dietary fiber. The germ is only about 2.5% of the kernel. It's actually the sprouting section of the seed, what's going to grow into a plant. It's usually separated during milling process because it contains most of the fat and therefore has a shorter shelf life. The endosperm is the main energy storage unit of the seed. That's where the growing plant gets its energy before it can start photosynthesizing and making its own. It makes up a huge portion of the grain, about 83%, and it's the main source that's used for white flour. When you make white flour, you get rid of the germ and the bran and just have the white endosperm left. It contains almost all the carbohydrates. It also contains protein and iron and some of the other B vitamins as well. It's kind of what you classically think of when you're thinking of flour. So all that's there when you're milling with whole grains, but when you mill with whole grains, you also get the bran, which is the kind of roughage and gives that, that's what gives that, that kind of color to it. Also gives you extra fiber that uh, helps you to be regular. And you also get the germ, which adds the fat and the flavor, which we all like from whole grains. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. Well, if you're just joining us and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on, this is Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And today that intersection is data and restaurants. And we're here talking with Damien McGavro about his recently published book, The Underground Culinary Tour, How the New Metrics of Today's Top Restaurants Are Transforming How America Eats. At the top of the show, he made the analogy that this is like the money ball of restaurants, where instead of having baseball cards, they talk about server cards and scorecards, and they really deconstruct and capture every single moment of the restaurant experience piece by piece. So for 
consumers who are interested and wondering why when they get to a restaurant and they see all those empty tables and the host says, I'm sorry, we're full. This book answers questions like that. But for the restaurant entrepreneur, there's a lot of uh, well-established multi-unit restaurants that have been using this type of software and data capture. But I think that we have Damien here. It's a really great opportunity to walk through some of the different points of data that can impact the dining experience, maybe for people who are just, you know, opening and who are just small. We see so many people in the food space today who are career changers or new to the industry or come to food through a very non-traditional route. They may not be going to hospitality school. They may not be going to Cornell. Um, you know, I spoke at a conference not too long ago and a woman was talking about how she had a great granola recipe and now has a granola company and she has her store and she's sort of navigating all those different types of things. So your book lays out some very interesting points that range from things like the weather to holidays to theft to all different kinds of things. So maybe um, if you were sitting down and giving a very valuable consultation to a new restaurant owner, what would you, what would you tell them to look for for data? The first thing I would say to do is collect your data. I mean, I mean, that's rule number one. There's so many things that happen in a restaurant and there's so many variables. And it's only when you really collect the data will you be able to extract the insights to make good business decisions. You know, one um, example of this is, um, you know, we were talking, uh, you know, off the air is uh, the very first chapter is called Maximizing the Montauk Sunshine. And it's about, uh, it's a single restaurant called Navy Beach. And it's a seasonal restaurant. And they only have, you know, 12 weeks to really um, make the most of it. And it is very weather dependent. But one of the insights that came out was that they discovered that on perfect sunny days, their business wasn't as strong as they thought. Which seems counterintuitive it's totally because you would think beautiful weather equals beautiful business, but But the thing is, the is that they had bigger competition. That was the beach. <laughs> <laughs> and even though they had their own sort of, uh, you know, beach, but it wasn't uh, the ocean beach, if you will. It wasn't like ditch plains. There were no waves. Yeah, exactly. And the beaches in Montauk are beautiful. So, And so one of the things that they did was um, because the software aggregates weather data, event data, sales data, you know, your calendar and logbook data, is they actually figured out that um, how do I get more business when it's a beautiful day? Um, and so they actually got a boat um, called Torpedo. And it's this little Boston whaler. And it actually would go out to the larger boats and bring customers in. And, um, and I just love that um, you know, story that I learned when um, writing the, uh, the first chapter. Uh, because it really shows how you know, the collecting of the data and creativity uh, really are the key to uh, success. It's really, you know, equal part of making sure you understand the data, but then what's the data telling you? And then what can you do creatively to really, um, you know, drive uh, your business and provide a magical guest experience? Well, restaurant people are probably a pretty creative bunch generally. I think it's, you know, whether you're in the back of the house with the chef or in the front of the house with a manager, you know, bartenders, there's a lot of creativity running through the DNA of restaurant people. But maybe not necessarily so good at numbers. How do you, you know, 
I know a lot of people where a spreadsheet of numbers can be very intimidating. How do you, you know, sort of conquer uh, maybe a fear of numbers or how do you learn how to look at these numbers and data? Because what you're talking about is hundreds and hundreds of, of possible points and outcomes to look at. One of the things when, when writing this book is um, I discovered that this New Guard restaurant tour is not limited to any one particular segment. And so that's why whether it's a single restaurant in Montauk and like Navy Beach or a family business like the Brennan's or it's um, a Brazilian um, you know, steakhouse chain like a Fogo de Chan, um, and uh, or, you know, the, one of the top nightclubs, uh, Omnia, which is part of the Hakkasan group. And they're very diverse businesses. But one of the common um, things across all these businesses is the more consistent the guest experience and the more magical the experience, the bigger the data geekery is behind the scenes. And it was actually the data um, enables these restaurateurs and entrepreneurs to be more creative artists, quite frankly. And so a lot of the mundane things um, get auto- automated so they can really go back to what they love to do, which is providing a creative um, you know, guest experience. So what's your recommendation for uh, an organization that doesn't have data people or doesn't have an analytical department or maybe doesn't have uh, you know, a person in the, in the back office who can look at these numbers? What if it's really just a, you know, uh, there, famously there's a, a restaurant in Brooklyn called Take Root, which is going to close later in March, and they are a restaurant staff of two. So how do people, um, if once they start to capture the data and aggregate it and collect it, how do you, what's your best advice for how people can jump in and, and look at it and start to analyze it without being overwhelmed? Because sure. it's a, a lot of information. Yeah. The, the, what I would say is um, when you aggregate the data and you go with a software provider, a point of sale company, an analytics provider, it's really important that one, this, the software is very simple to use. And two, there's a service organization that enables to share best practices with um, with the client because software is only as good as it's utilized. And one of the things that I've learned, you know, in growing Avero is that it's really the uh, the service experience and really making sure that um, the service provider understands it. So we hire former restaurateurs, you know, took the company with a with a great. Um, with a great uh, team, you know, from studio apartment um, to 10,000 restaurants in 70 countries. But one of the key things is making the software simple to use, as well as have a service organization made up of former restaurateurs to understand the business problems that the restaurant um, is going through. And uh, because they don't have a lot of time, and that is really one of the scarcest commodities. So if the software is not simple to use, and if they don't have a great service organization, you have to think twice. And that's one of the key things that I've learned uh, over the years. So the uh, last chapter of your book is looking forward to sort of the future of restaurants. And you talk about um, a couple of a couple of categories being uh, the factors that you think are going to be driving uh, what we see in restaurants in the near term. The first one is ingredients, which sort of seems self-evident. I mean, we've been talking about ingredients in farm-to-table for so long. Do you think that ingredients are going to continue to be as important, or is there a new element to ingredients in the future that you yes. think is coming? Yeah, so the, the four um, ingredients, 
the four themes I see um, that these new guard restaurateurs are innovating are ingredients, beverage, space, and X factor that I talk about in chapter 10, Restaurants of Tomorrow. And what I'm talking about with uh, ingredients, it's really the highest quality ingredients, the most casual setting. And I think it's so exciting to be a foodie today because you can find great food everywhere, whether it's a traffic island in the middle of uh, Manhattan, you know, Madden Square Square Eats, or if you're at a stadium, the U.S. Bank, um, you know, stadium in Minneapolis, to even Plano, Texas, where they're developing a 55,000 square foot food hall. So I think the thing that's really exciting is where you're going to find the highest quality ingredients. And if you're a restaurateur, how are you going to really innovate um, you know, your concepts to make it more casual? Quite frankly, the fast casual segment is growing three times as fast as uh, you know, the sit down. And, but it's not just these independent um, standalone locations. Um, I think what you're seeing is that, um, that quite frankly, food will be the next, um, you know, which is going into space. Food's going to be the next real estate anchor tenant. It's not going to be Macy's and Bloomingdale's anymore. So if there's a real estate project that's happening, I believe that food will be the major anchor tenant as opposed to, um, you know, traditional retail. So beyond what we've seen in like the Bank of America building with Oriole or when they built Time Warner, they had Thomas Keller as the anchor to that shopping center. So similar to that, but just yeah, more so. I, do, I, mean, I think so. And I'll give you, of, yeah. I, I'd be curious to hear you extrapolate a little bit about that because one of the um, serious uh, crisis points that we're seeing in, in the restaurant industry in New York and particularly in other cities is the real estate issue. Um, restaurants, you know, famously Danny Meyer, again, wrote the introduction to your book, Union Square Hospitality Group. They were forced out of Union Square's original location because the rent was being, I think, quadrupled. And the reason the landlord could quadruple the rent was because Danny Meyer had invested so much in the neighborhood and sort of bringing it up to scale. So I'm interested to hear that you think restaurants will be the anchor of real estate when restaurants are fleeing and having really a difficult time because that prime real estate is just becoming out of reach. I think it's not going to be prime real estate, though. I, I think that you've mentioned so many things. I mean, we could talk an hour for what you just mentioned. Um, and, um, you know, uh, I'm a huge fan of the new Union Square uh, Cafe. Um, and that could be a whole nother, uh, you know, uh, as, series. Is, as is the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, I could do a podcast called, you know, what do you think about Danny? And we could just talk about the amazing Danny Meyer for an hour every week. <laughs> no, I love the guy. Um, so, but one of the things that I would just say is that the um, the secondary market awakening, and I would call there's two two things two points. Um, one is there's this uh, concept called urban um, disloyalty that I talk about in the book, and then I also call it secondary market awakening uh, because of um, technology and uh, social media and food blogs. There, um, you know, it's really um, it's a great time, you know, to be a foodie because you're being introduced to all these new places that are opening, and that's really exciting. In fact, I interviewed someone for a job and I asked what their favorite restaurant is, and they said, "Why would I ever have a favorite restaurant?" And because I can just go out to a new place every time. And my response is usually. In which category? Because I have favorites in different categories. <laughs> exactly. But this person just wanted to keep going out. And I guess if you had the funds, God bless the person. Um, but that being said, restaurants at their very nature 
must be repeat visitation engines to be economically successful. But when you have a foodie that um, really is all about going to the new place, there's the problem is is that you um, want to explore new places, but at the expense of returning to a favorite. And it's also it's also a cycle that we see. Um, particular to restaurant openings where it becomes problematic, where a restaurant opens, we see people waiting in line around the block because everybody wants to be first in to post those Instagram photos and say, sure. oh, I've been here, I've been here. And once that stresses a newly opened restaurant, just in terms of you know staff and capacity and all those things. And then a few months after when the lines go away and everybody's gone through, it's kind of empty because people have done that and they've done it and moved on. And it's actually... Um, the impact of social media specifically to this point um, and the impact on restaurants is something that I had a very interesting conversation with Adam Platt about on one of the episodes at the end of last year about, you know, the impact of all these instantaneous social media things on the long-term success of restaurants. Yes. I mean, this is one of the big challenges um, for our industry and it's something that, um, you know, and I think for one of the things that I see in the New Guard Restaurant Tour doing is continuing to innovate on ingredients, beverage space, and X Factor to bring back the foodies. And that's something, you know, whether it's a restaurant within a restaurant concept, developing a concept within within the four walls, somewhere to next door, Blanca, right? Uh, years ago, um, you did a whole new concept. It brought, you know, a um, whole new, you know, group of people coming in. But I think that the idea of opening a restaurant and just letting it run, I think those days are over. And how do you constantly, you know, innovate is uh, going to be an important aspect. And so, and you, and look, we see it in the numbers. You can see the same store sales pressure in these urban markets. On the same token, we see a, um, it's never been more exciting time to be in these secondary markets like um, Plano, Texas, for example, where they're building this 55,000 square foot food hall, 20 venues under one roof. Plano secondary or third? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think of secondary, I think of secondary, like, you know, you have the top, the top 10 urban and then outside of that, like, I think of secondary as, you know, that, that seems almost even like one more. So call it tertiary. Possibly. (laughs) Or all your listeners in Plano, Texas. (laughs) Major league, minor league, and then there's farm league. And I mean, to continue the baseball analogy. It's so funny, but you know, imagine. That's, that's new. That's. New York City. See, we're we're in we're in we're in Bushwick, right? So we, you can say that. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but look, I mean, I think that's why it's so exciting is you're going to have. In fact, one of the um, CEOs on my uh, the Underground Colony Tour, the book gets its name for a real tour. You know that uh, that we do 15 stops in 25 hours, and one of the things that the CEO saw was Gotham Market West. Um, you know, in Hell's Kitchen, which just opened up another one in Fort Greene. And they took that concept and are bringing it to Plano, Texas. And it's 55,000 square feet. It's 20 venues. It's a brewery, um, a live entertainment. But just think about that. I mean, this is in Plano, Texas. So I do think that, and but they're using food as an anchor for this multi-billion dollar project. And so it's not in the, 
you know, the prime sort of urban area that you were talking about, the original point with uh, Danny Myers, you know, restaurant. But I do see the secondary market awakening. And uh, but I have to, to say that uh, that Union Square is very special and near and dear to my heart because I actually uh, helped Danny uh, find his uh, the second uh, the, the new Union Square. So I'm very partial. Oh, well, I think a lot of people that that's good to know that you helped him find a new home. I think a lot of people are partial to Danny and he's been in the uh, industry for so long and has been such a success and also so generous with his knowledge and success that a lot of people that you encounter have a nice story to tell about him. Yeah. The restaurant it. industry, I adore the restaurant industry. I am a huge supporter and fan of the restaurant industry, but it has a little bit of a sleazy side or like a little bit of the underbelly to it sometimes. And I have to say, Danny Meyer is person who has exemplary reputation across the board. Yeah, he's been a mentor of mine, and yeah. he's just so great for the industry. Both um, So Danny and Tom were actually Averos among their very first clients um, right. when they were together at, uh, at Gramercy Tavern. Well, he's been one of the leaders in the, in the tech space also. He was one of the first uh, restaurant people on board with Open Table way back when, when people thought Open Table was a crazy idea. Just a crazy idea. Um, and I not too long ago saw Danny and Steve Case speak together and talk about, you know, the different revolutions in their two industries and how they kind of have merged a little bit restaurants and technology and the internet. So, yeah. Someday somebody will write a big book about Danny and Union Square Hospitality Group and Shake Shack and all of that and be a tome that they'll study and, you know, at Cornell and other institutions. <laughs> Actually, maybe I should call a, a, a book agent and see if we can maybe pitch that book. <laughs> um, we are really, unfortunately, close to being out of time, but this is actually the perfect segue into I like to ask all of my guests at the end of the show for a piece of advice to our listeners, um, maybe something that can help them with their endeavors. I get a lot of questions from people generally in life and on, uh, you know, through emails and, you know, LinkedIn messages and things like that. There are a lot of people who want to be in food media and in food writing and who have an idea for a book hmm. and want to write. And you, we have this, you know, beautiful hardcover published book sitting right here on the table What's your best advice to somebody who has a story to tell who would like to publish a book? How would you advise them to start that process and maybe become a published author like yourself? Well, I think it first starts with you got to follow your passion. And that's really what it's all about is, you know, if you're doing what you love to do and you're passionate about it, I think that's the first thing that you know, um, you know, a, a, a book, um, you know, would, would follow something like that. It's not, you know, Hey, I have an idea for a book. It's like, well, what are you passionate about? And what is it that you want to, uh, to share with the world? And so in my case, it was, you know, having, you know, built, you know, a Vero, um, you know, and really helped, you know, these 10,000 restaurants in 70 countries. But one of the things that I noticed is that you can have the most efficient restaurant in the world. Um, but, you also need to be conceptually relevant. And so for me, you know, I did the underground culinary tour, these 15 stops in 25 hours to help CEOs really get a glimpse, you know, of the, uh, of the future. Um, because things that are happening in New York used to take 20 years because of social media and technology, they take six to 12 months. 
And so the book was, you know, a way to really communicate what I thought, you know, and really wanted to celebrate these new guard restaurateurs that were doing both, you know, both embracing the data um, and embracing technology um, to be more efficient. But in the same token, how are they innovating um, and continuing to really uh, evolve to make sure that they were um, really uh, relevant to the next generation of consumers. And together, um, I wanted to call them New Guard Restaurateurs, and I felt very passionate about it and was very fortunate to, um, to find a, a, you know, a great publisher in Crown, and uh, who they do many business books, but they also have a cookbook division as well. And so I think that finding, uh, not, not only you know, you're telling your story, you're, you're passionate about, but finding the right partner. I cannot emphasize that enough. And the team you know, at Crown... Um, you know, they, they've done um, a lot of great business books like Damon John's, you know, book from Shark Tank and Peter Thiel's book. Um, but they also have got this great cookbooks. And so I needed to find someone that had the business voice and also the foodie voice um, that could match what I was passionate about. And so that's something that I would recommend to someone that uh, wants to write a book is follow your passion, but then find the right partner that believes in that passion and the vision for the project. And I was fortunate to find it. That sounds like good advice for publishing a book, but it also is pretty solid advice for business and life in general. Do what you're passionate about and find a good partner to do it with. <laughs> there, you know, maybe that's ne- the title of your next book. Oh, boy. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> the sequel, the how-to book. Oh, I can blame you for that. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I can write the foreword. Okay. We can yeah. talk about the moment of inspiration that happened in the shipping container. In um, Bushwick. In Bushwick, Brooklyn. With great pizza, right? With Reverse great, great pizza. pizza. <laughs> if you would like to follow Damien and hear more from him, he is on Twitter and Instagram at D-A-M-I-A-N. M-O-G-A-V-E-R-O. If you want to learn more about Avero, you can find them online at averoinc.com, A-V-E-R-O-I-N-C. Again, the title of the book is The Underground Culinary Tour, The New Metrics of How Today's Top Restaurants Are Transforming How America Eats. Damien, are you going to be out and about in the world um, doing any book signings or readings? Yes, I was actually at the Philly Chef Conference. Just got back from Philadelphia um, and um, was at uh, Drexel University. And what a great uh, program they have in um, culinary arts and hospitality. Um, And I was just so impressed. And the Philly food scene is just incredible. Um, so really enjoyed my time. It's also my hometown is Haddonfield, New Jersey. Uh, Perfect. So it was great to, um, you know, to, uh, to be in Phil- the Philadelphia area. Um, and so, but I'm actually also going to, uh, to Europe to do uh, a speaking engagement. And uh, one of the things that this manufacturing company is interested in, in particular, is uh, Chapter 4. Um, and it's all about Fogo de Chao and learning how they, you know, can do uh, just-in-time inventory and producing, you know, meats. These gouges make these delicious meats, how they can apply those principles in manufacturing. And so... Um, so it was very, it's, um, uh, talk about a diverse, <laughs> you know, interest. So, um, but in any event, no, it's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun, um, you know, um, you know, going, you know, both to both, um, you know, industry, you know, conferences and, and non-industry to talk about the underground culinary. I've been having a blast. Do you have any dates coming up in the United States that people can come out for? Um, that, that is a great question. Uh, I'll have to get back to you on that. I'm, or follow uh, him on social media because I'm sure you post and let I people do. know where you're where you're going and heading off to. I, I do. 
Wonderful. Well, I want to thank Damien for coming out this morning and spending some time uh, with us explaining how data does make dinner better. I know it seems crazy, but it's true. I want to thank all of our listeners for spending time with us. If you like the show, come back and listen next week on Thursday at 11 a.m. or download it on iTunes. Subscribe. Leave us a five-star review. If you really, really loved it and you think journalism, stories about food, a platform to have conversations about public school lunch policy, farmers, farm policy, food tech, cheese, beer, all of these things, heritageradionetwork.org is the place. Stop by our website, click the beating heart, make a donation, give us what you spent on coffee today so we can make more radio. And if you designate your donation to Tech Bites, I will send you something special along with my undying love. I'm Jennifer Leutzi. This is Tech Bites. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 